0: Under the Jews a stumbling block, under the Greeks foolishness, but unto them which are called both Jews and Greeks Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Now, here's your host, Thomas Irvin.
1: Overwhelmingly. The claims made in our day by feminists are patently false. As a result, men have become the target of gender condescension. The purpose of this, positive discrimination in one direction, requires negative discrimination in the other direction. You can't have one without the other. Thus, unfounded claims by lewd and contentious women become the rally cries used to bring men low. The feminist claims that they are oppressed under some dominant male patriarchy is nothing more than Marxist propaganda by way of identity politics. Fortunately, the continual dripping, which is the feminist movement, has thus far been an abject failure. They have not ushered in their brave new society. They have failed even to gain the support of a large portion of women. In reality, most recently, they have managed to find themselves taking a back seat to men who claim to be women. Feminists may be the most hypocritical lot extant. As they shriek aloud, both audibly and visibly, about all things Marxist and progressive, women who truly need a voice are conveniently left on their own. For instance, when was the last time a green haired, metal faced feminist? use their high-pitched torture treatments in defense of Islamic women. If true oppression was their aim, they leave out the most oppressed women in existence. But according to the arbitrary critical race theory hierarchy, feminists, especially white feminists, fall too low in the rankings to defend women oppressed by Islam. They would rather these women to remain in modern slavery than risk being called a racist for defending them. Under such theories, Islam is able to escape much-needed criticism. Not even gunning down the patrons of a gay nightclub in Orlando, Florida is enough to bring any condemnation. Thus, Islamic women will just have to remain in their place, apparently. Now, Islamic women are often locked in their homes for days, incapable of leaving. If they are permitted to leave, and permission is a required prerequisite, They do so under strict supervision. These women are subject to harsh forms of arranged marriages. The suitor may be their first cousin, a man two or three times their elder, or simply a man who despises her as much as she despises him. No discussion will be had. If she disagrees, she will be beaten into agreement. If she continues to disagree, she may well be put to death for bringing shame upon the family. As Muslim women live out these realities around the world, the silence from feminists is deafening. It would seem a group of contentious women who have made getting their way by being loud and obnoxious would have something to say about these abuses at a time when silence is apparently violence. I wonder if they have considered their complicit role in these scenarios. The trouble is actually far worse than one can imagine. The equation is off balance Feminists conflate their minor irritations with the real oppression women experience around the world. We live in a time where people are so spoiled, they can pretend a woke female waitress forcing patrons to drink from paper straws is equivalent to honor killings in the Islamic world. Life is so good, Western women have to imagine troubles into existence. When their imagination is lacking, the humanities studies of American universities will help fill in the blanks. The hyperbole that describes the sufferings of American women will never do one thing to help Islamic women who this very day were beaten senselessly for simply having an opinion. Americans no longer have any concept of real suffering. They are incapable of producing a proper scale, most likely due to the fact it would demonstrate the ease of life they truly have. Islam sanctions the abuse of women even going so far as to train men how to properly beat their wives. Women are forcefully circumcised, an activity I have never heard a feminist volunteer for nor defend against. When Islam is the law, the entire social, political, and moral structure is accepted without question. The opposite of that would be a free society in which women can complain openly and loudly about their perceived oppression. But we have reached a place in this silly game where self-gratifying views that are multicultural in nature paralyze our angry feminists. They cannot bring themselves to depart with the joys of virtue signaling enough to fight real oppression. A fight of this sort would require one to name cultures of violence towards women for what they are, and that would make feminists racist according to their own doctrine. Since being labeled racist is the lowest of insults, Our feminists cannot risk defending women who truly have no voice. Feminists will not give up their position in the hierarchy, for there they enjoy such privilege. Where are the feminists when women are faced with real oppression? They fight fearlessly for pronouns and equal pay in a world where Islamic women would be beaten for suggesting they wanted a job. Selfish cowards, loud and lewd, no concern for women in real trouble only the self-centered concern one would expect from spoiled brats. In the Islamic world, women are expected to keep the word of their father. The true male patriarchy feminists so despise does exist, just not in America. Should the young lady who finds marrying her first cousin appalling break her father's word, she will be subject to unbelievably harsh treatment. If she is not beaten into submission or killed, because nothing restores honor like murder, she will be sent to live in the streets. At this point, she is relegated to the life of a prostitute. Her disregard for her father's word makes her fair game for sexual abuse. Again, not one word from feminists defending these women. I lived in the Middle East for nearly seven years. I have heard hundreds of stories regarding the ill treatment of women I recall repeatedly learning of the desire of Saudi men over whom I was responsible to get a new wife. Initially, I wasn't sure what they meant. In response, I would often joke, do you have a store around here or something for that? I was taken back at the callousness they displayed toward women as though they were some commodity to be purchased and used as needed. I was often further amazed when these words were spoken by young men who were already married, sometimes to multiple women. I would ask them what they would do if their wife brought home another husband. The response was always arrogant laughter or assurance of violent reprisal. It would not be the men for whom they are upset, though it may not fare well for that man. The fault will always lie with the product these men bought. That is the woman they call wife. And when a product appears faulty, the owner may throw it by the wayside in whatever manner they desire. When Islamic women experience freedom, they enjoy it to the max, unfortunately often in lascivious ways. A moment of breath when released from their oppressors is memorable. I recall flying from Saudi Arabia to Dubai during my time in the Middle East. Once the flight was well on its way to Dubai, a line for the women's restroom would form down the aisle. Women covered in black with only an eye slit visible would enter the restroom, and out came Arab women dressed like models. Their coverings are not in response to religious conviction, they are forced into such apparel. In America, the well established relationship between church and state created a society of liberated people free to think as they choose. Over time, such liberalities were broadened to all men and women, making feminists free to live as they choose, pursue careers as they choose, dress or not dress as they choose, and then complain about some mild irritation that may exist in their respective lives. Islamic women are literally forced to dress in garb that resembles construction grade trash bags, and all the while, American feminists are free to dress. Like trash. Factual news regarding the dreadful plight of Islamic women exists in abundance. But the only congruence to such news is feminist silence. Clearly, Islamic men embody the very charges feminists apply to men in the West. But for some reason, they refuse to turn their attacks where they are actually needed. Feminists have had nothing to say regarding the kidnapping of 276 schoolgirls by Boko Haram. This seems to be an event worth some outcry, but feminist cowards left these girls to fend for themselves. Another notable case one would consider to be of interest for feminists was that of a nine-year-old girl in Saudi Arabia. She was given permission to divorce her 50-year-old husband after a human rights group within Saudi Arabia brought international attention to the marriage. What's amazing is this marriage was brought before a judge. The girl's mother tried to prevent the marriage, but the judge approved the marriage under one condition. The husband could not consummate the marriage until the young girl reached an arbitrary age of perceived maturity. Again, Saudi Arabia is the very male patriarchal society feminists claim to hate, but have said little to nothing about. Cases of this sort are found in international news regularly. For sake of the type of program I intended to provide you, I have to be selective regarding the case studies I provide. Thousands exist, but they are so grotesque, severe warning labels would be required if I were to describe them. Yet despite the brutality, no articles, no demonstration in the streets, no demands for intervention, just feminist silence, at least on these topics. Feminists have busied themselves with celebrating their own self-righteous virtue and contemplating their own perceived victimhood. Feminists cannot admit the suffering of Islamic women is light years worse than their own peevish grievances. They are intent on hating the men needed to war against these brutal tyrannies that treat women like animals. They suffer from the blind moral superiority that they attribute with being born female. But, were feminists to give up their own petty resentments, it would be bad for business. In other words, to address the problems of Muslim women honestly, feminists would have to recognize their own current freedom. And recognizing that would mean an end to feminism as we know it. It's a sad situation. Feminists finally have a real cause for which to fight, an opportunity to be heroes, a chance to help liberate women who need their support, but they refuse to take up this mantle. So what are feminists fighting for instead? What could be so much more important than the brutal abuse of Islamic women across the world? Well, one battle they are engaged in is that of pronouns. Yes, pronouns. (laughs) One of the greatest powers available is control of speech. It is notable that the founders of the American Constitution made certain freedom of speech was available to the citizens who would be subject to this great document. Groups who seek extreme power intend to assume control over society's speech. Doing so would make certain no counterview or opinion is heard, and the propaganda of the dominating power is at the forefront. Feminists are among the groups of repulsives who intend to force their views upon society, which of course is easier to accomplish if they can control the speech of others. The loud and obnoxious nature of these groups causes even large corporations to fold and to give in to their demands. Their hope is that appeasement will quiet the wild beasts, but like feeding bears in the wild, they will just return for more. Concessions of this sort will not reduce but increase the appetite of lunatics, This is a hard lesson corporations are learning from placating to groups like Black Lives Matter and Antifa, amongst other Marxist revolutionaries. But this method of forced participation will be used by feminists until they can work this type of control over speech into the legal apparatus. Until then, they are coming for your tongue. As feminists have made their complaints known regarding the Western world, they intend to get their way even at the expense of men. Maybe even despite the cost, their advancement would pose upon them. They can see no world where men and women have actual equality. They demand equity. But this attitude is common amongst Marxists. Men once viewed women as the weaker sex, thereby producing in men a protective attitude towards women. Now, by feminist demands, men are expected to see women as equal competitors across respective fields. I recall the oft-repeated phrase, chivalry is dead, but it must be known that feminists are the killers. Were a man to attempt to hold a woman's door open for her today, it may be met with righteous indignation. His manly gesture of respect toward a woman may be turned into embarrassment as the angry green-haired feminist snarls in resentment. Furthermore, the feminist hatred of modesty only induces lesser levels of respect. It is natural and correct to think in a condescending manner of harlots. Women who cannot respect themselves enough to dress in modest fashion draws unto themselves a manner of criticism that is meat for them. Men are being cornered. Any form of masculinity is attacked and stripped from them. Effeminate men in skinny jeans who get their nails and toes done are on the rise. Women are working in construction while men are doing hair. I cringe each time I see a grown man passing by in possession of a small toy dog breed in Paris Hilton-like fashion. Hair gel for men, hairspray for men, overly soft and manicured pansies who willingly abandon the masculinity God requires. Contentious women should not like men, real men that is. Their intent to dominate every situation should be challenged and silenced by your presence. This does not mean we are to brutalize feminist women, but they should understand their loud and obnoxious demands will gain them no advantage in your presence. Feminists intend to strip you of your courage and tenacity. They will replace it with lotions and perms. Men once played a prominent role as protector and provider, but this idea is being systematically stripped from the few men left who are interested in assuming such a role. Massive divorce rates or fatherless children, are at least in part the result of this feminist liberation. Feminists view family relationships as a societal construct created for the sole purpose of keeping women in the home. They do not view their responsibility in the overall relationship as vital. These women prefer to spend their time out in the world competing with men. That is, as long as the competition is weighted heavily in their favor. Part of this domination of the competition is the abundance of promiscuity. Relationships have become seasonal at best. Men come and go according to the arbitrary desires of the woman. Feminists truly believe gender roles have no transcendent source. They are simply cultural constructs meant to hold women down. Therefore, radically changing them can overthrow extant power structures and usher in a new age of utopian equality for all. Part of this overthrow is rooted in gender identity. Since feminists believe gender is a social construct, they believe it was imposed upon them by men and must be reconstructed in accord with their own arbitrary terms. They conflate biological sex with gender identity. Playing the proper word games produces the desired confusion, and confusion abounds. Breaking free from the undesired gender construct feminists feel they have been wrongly subject to means redefining one's own gender as they see fit. What's odd, and much about this can be said to be odd, the new role these feminists often choose for themselves (laughs) is that of a man. They hate men. They attack masculinity. But when given the opportunity to treat their gender as malleable, they choose the look of masculinity typically found in men. (laughs) They despise men. They want to make men effeminate, while at the same time themselves assuming the role of masculinity, the very masculinity they are fighting to remove. The sexual revolution ushered in mass confusion between men and women. The revolutionaries were successful in making women free to live lewd lives and making men lose any semblance of respect for women. The measure of respect that is offered today is superficial. It is, in a sense, an opportunity to virtue signal. Otherwise, women have become so gross in their deportment and dress that men view them as packaged, processed meat. Likewise, women view men as toys to be played with. And since they have been stripped of their masculinity, they are now comfortably sitting in the nail salon right next to women. The proper balance can only be found in Christian homes. I do not say this simply because I am a Christian. My opinion on this matter stems from living on many sides of this equation. I'm not going to suggest that being a Christian is the only way relationships can last. Plenty of strong marriage relationships exist outside of Christianity, and plenty of bad relationships exist within Christianity. The common factor between the good marriages of the secular sort and the good marriages of the Christian sort will be the fact they are all based upon biblical principles namely fidelity one to the other this alone is high on the list another is the ability for the man and the woman to understand and be diligent in their respective roles within the relationship these roles are well defined in the word of god but even a loose observance of them can result in a strong marriage relationship but as soon as the roles within the relationship are brought up feminists lose their minds The sexual revolution taught them to rebel against any idea of transcendent roles and responsibilities attached to relationships. Thus, standards are being set that fight against a God-ordained nature and continue to establish major imbalances within relationships. Thus, marriage is despised, women become single mothers, and men are either effeminate or at 30-something, they sit at home and play video games. But allow me to offer some constructive advice from the Word of God. Ephesians 5, 22-29 says, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands, as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord, the church. There are some fundamental concepts here to consider. First, women in submission to their husbands. This relational hierarchy is meant to be viewed in terms of the relationship a person has with Christ himself. He is God. He is Lord and therefore deserves a place of reverence in our lives. As such, we willingly submit to his request and his commands. It's not forced upon us. It can't be forced upon you. We are instructed to be submissive to him in his word. Then we have the responsibility to choose to follow through. Christ is asking wives to view their marriage relationship in the same manner. He is asking the wife to choose to be submissive to the leadership of her husband. This does not make the wife some sort of second-class citizen, but rather this makes certain the two people in the one marriage relationship are not headed in opposite directions. Furthermore, this places the responsibility for leadership on the husband. And sir, if she followed your instruction and it failed, you are 100% responsible. If she did not follow your leadership and it failed, (laughs) you are still responsible. God holds men accountable for the condition and direction of the family. Then comes the responsibility of the husband. He is to both love his wife like Christ loved the church, as well as love his wife as he loves himself. I would say following this pattern would make it foolproof that men should love their wives. Let's say a man's relationship with Christ is lacking. And he has not developed a love for the Lord. I find it hard to believe then that a man lacks a relationship of love for himself. This may not necessarily be narcissistic self-love, but rather a healthy love for self, which motivates one to wake up daily and provide necessary needs. Do you at the very least care for your wife as much as you care for yourself? Many men treat themselves very well, but fail to treat their wives in like manner. Christ was concerned for the betterment of his bride, even sacrificing himself to make certain his love for her was on full display. Men could at the very least love their wives as they love themselves, but what would be even better is to love their wives as Christ loved the church. I understand discussions about Jesus Christ and marriage are way beyond the purview of the average feminist. But I would suggest that is precisely the problem. So now I'm going to make matters worse by reading a passage that will express to you the type of woman that God holds in high regard. Proverbs 31 verses 10 through 31 say, Who can find a virtuous woman? For her price is far above rubies. The heart of her husband does safely trust in her, so that she shall have no need of spoil. She will do him good and not evil. All the days of her life, she seeketh wool and flax, and worketh willingly with her hands. She is like the merchant's ships, she bringeth her food from afar. She riseth also while it is yet night, and giveth meat to her household, and a portion to her maidens. She considereth the field, and buyeth it. With the fruit of her hands she planteth a vineyard. She girdeth her loins with strength, and strengtheneth her arms. She perceiveth that her merchandise is good. Her candle goeth out by night. She layeth her hands to the spindle, and her hands hold the distaff. She stretcheth out her hand to the poor. Yea, she reacheth forth her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of the snow for her household, for all her household are clothed with scarlet. She maketh herself coverings of tapestry. Her clothing is silk and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sitteth among the elders of the land. She maketh fine linen, and selleth it, and delivereth girdles unto the merchant. Strength and honor are her clothing, and she shall rejoice in the time to come. She openeth her mouth with wisdom, and in her tongue is the law of kindness. She looketh well to the ways of her household, and eateth not the bread of idleness. Her children arise up and call her blessed. Her husband also... And he praiseth her. Many daughters have done virtuously, but thou excellest them all. Favor is deceitful, and beauty is vain. But a woman that feareth the Lord, she shall be praised. Give her the fruit of her hands, and let her own works praise her in the gates. Our country's mentality with regards to doing good has become perverse. In the minds of the average millennial, Simply gracing another human with their presence is considered the greatest good. Despite the torturous activity that may take place with them present, the rest of the world should simply count themselves fortunate to have had such a wonderful opportunity. In marriage, this will never work. In fact, it doesn't work in any form of relationship. Yet this does not prevent the modern feminist from remaining self-absorbed. They refuse to recognize everyone has burdens to bear. Nonetheless, feminists remain reluctant to leave off from their rebellious adolescent attitudes. Temper tantrums of the most bizarre sort manifest this group's complete lack of virtue. They have become obscene spectacles by way of fits over malleable forms of morality. They prefer to bite and devour one another rather than engage in a reasonable discussion that concludes with sensible solutions. Feminist goals are shrewd and short-sighted. Their speech is contemptible and deceitful. Their aim is to use such speech to accomplish short-term goals with no consideration for the long-term implications. They demand equality of outcome over equality of opportunity. Ever since Thomas More's booklet Utopia, socialist and communists of various ilks have tried to force-feed the world their visions of an egalitarian society. The current manifestation of weak men alongside the emergence of domineering women has resulted in a troublesome Western phenomenon. Somehow we have come to perceive male competence as a sort of pernicious disease that must be rooted out. This philosophical approach pits men and women against one another as vicious competitors. Even within marriage, husbands struggle with allowing their hearts to safely trust in their wives due to a constant level of rivalry. Rather than a unit working together in understood, prescribed, transcendent roles, demands are made on each side that can rarely be met. At some point, no doubt, children arrive upon the scene. They are introduced into a world almost begrudgingly. By the year 2020, the mother's womb has become more like a Soviet gulag rather than a safe space for children to develop. But if the feminist-minded mother allows the child to live past conception, they arrive into a dysfunctional power struggle often called family. The husband has a career, the wife has a career, thus they have need to find someone they can pay to raise their child, all in the name of equality. Because God's word is no longer a factor, and reason is sacrificed to the gods of equity, feminists continue to struggle against the imaginary tyrannical patriarchy. The women under Islamic rule who are beaten, violated sexually, and even killed for the perceived honor of dishonorable men will have to fight their own battles. I do wonder if feminists ever consider their hypocrisy. The assumption that the West consists of a dominant tyrannical male patriarch requires us to also assume that women have made no valuable contribution to society whatsoever. My understanding of tyranny must be very different from that of a modern-day feminist. I fail to recognize the tyranny when I see women freely present themselves in vile and morally deficient dress. When I lived in Saudi Arabia, the Mutawa, or religious police, would have beaten such a woman on the spot. I further failed to see the tyranny in a country where feminist books are sold, articles are written, audio is published, speeches are given, and their worldview is dominant at nearly every university. That is, as long as they march in tune with the new roles set for them by their chosen tyrannical hierarchy <laughs> known as multiculturalism. Clearly, when the blind lead the blind, they both fall into the ditch. But to me, it seems, it seems rare that so many people are happy to be so low. The more society develops an egalitarian mindset in terms of freedom of choice, the cultural and biological differences between men and women suddenly become magnified, which, of course, is devastating to the feminist hypothesis. No level of social engineering, save that of direct tyranny, will change this reality. This has been fundamentally understood throughout all of human history and more recently has been well demonstrated scientifically. But great confusion continues to be introduced when feminists show up and assert these differences are the result of social constructs rather than biological realities. As such, they intend to change this construct, thereby giving women the man-like presence that a few of them desire. The problem with this attempt at social engineering is that the differences between men and women, both cultural and biological, are transcendent, non-malleable constructs given by God. They cannot be changed. Thus, any attempt to socially engineer a new and different construct will be against nature and risk the destruction of the local societies which adopt such ideas. This is not hyperbole. What happens to a society whose members are homosexual? How exactly would they propagate? What happens to a society in which domineering women have no use for men? Or if, haply, a child is conceived, it is promptly aborted? Again, How would such a society propagate? Any attempt to live outside the biological norms God created will result in that society being corrected by their own wickedness. God said, As for my people, children are their oppressors, and women rule over them. O my people, they which lead thee cause thee to err and destroy the way of thy paths. When masculinity is abolished, (laughs) in men at least, Will women be sent to fend off the hordes of Muslims who already violently entreat their own women? The biological and God-given functions between men and women do not serve to entrap one or the other into a form of societal bondage. It is precisely this function that is needed for that society to thrive. God said righteousness exalteth the nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. The further outside these bounds that man, as well as manly women, attempt to live, the more that trouble and confusion will abound. The closer a society lives within a godly framework, the better that society functions, even if their attempt to do so is loosely applied. God did not in every case give micro-instruction for every situation. Much freedom within reasonable scriptural boundaries are given for men and women to navigate these transcendent societal roles. To defy them and the liberty given within them is to defy the true and living God, thereby inviting one's own destruction. But, of course, this brings us back to the age-old problem of obedience to God. Feminists defy God. They despise men, but they have been put in their place by multiculturalism, (laughs) They have a new boss to whom they are forced into submission. The virtuous woman is called blessed. She is loved. She is trusted. The feminist is contentious. She cannot be trusted and she is self-centered women of the world. What a contrast is given to you. The children of the virtuous woman call her blessed. The children of the feminist rarely ever make it out of the womb. The womb of a feminist rivals Paul Potts killing fields. Again, In contrast, the pregnancy of a virtuous woman is one of the sweetest sights to behold. Attempting to determine which side to land on seems simple to me. It's sort of like seeing a homeless drug addict and then on that basis deciding for or against drugs. (laughs) Regardless, the battle rages on. Agents of social change are experts at propaganda. Social engineers, who are no more technical than a three-year-old attempting to place a square peg in a circular hole, are dubbed experts. Repeatedly, one will hear, listen to the experts, follow the science, studies have shown, all code words meant to pressure society into submission to ready-made propaganda. As Christians, we are instructed, by God, be not deceived. We have no business being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine produced by this present evil world. Retribution against dissenters is a natural aspect of totalitarian regimes. Feminists make the accusation the West is a form of tyrannical patriarchy, and if you do not believe them, they will terrorize dissenters into submission, just as tyrants have done throughout the ages. Their ultimate aim is not social justice, but rather seizure of power. All a common theme amongst Marxists who have come to hate the American way of life. BLM purports to fight against racism by way of blatant racism. Antifa is apparently against fascism, all the while proving to be the most fascist group in existence. Then we have the feminists, who I am suggesting are Marxist, but due to their newfound submission to multicultural ideas, well, <laughs> they no longer exist as a relevant collectivist group of tyrants. Watching this particular group of malcontents submit to the new place in life forcefully given them overwhelmingly highlights the hypocrisy that was theirs in the first place. Thank you for listening, and God bless.
0: We hope you enjoyed this podcast. You can learn more about our ministry by visiting www.pleniusredemption.com You can hear more Plenteous Redemption podcast audio at www.plenteousredemption.media. Please comment below if this podcast has been a help to you. Also, inform us of future topics that would interest you. Thank you again for listening to the Plenteous Redemption podcast.